You're listening to the Safety at Work podcast, episode six. Today, we're asking the question, what is the cost of accepting the cheapest tender? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question? Well, I'm sure we've all heard stories about trade-offs between cost and safety. We may even have heard claims that you things like that investment in safety is actually just good business. What we're going to look at today is a bit of a closer look at how attempts to reduce operational costs can negatively impact safety. So we're hoping, as do the authors in our study, that if we take a close look at what are the real implications of cost-cutting on safety, that can help safety practitioners recognise how and when it's important to influence decision-making that may be just a little bit broader than specifically how do we do safety on a particular project. So our question, to put it simply, is when an organisation submits a low bid for a tender and that bid is successful, what does that end up doing to safety? The paper we're looking at is called An Industry Structured for Unsafety an exploration of the cost-safety conundrum in construction project delivery. So shout out, shout out to Ben Hutchinson, who at the moment is sharing a number of interesting papers on LinkedIn, and that's how we both found this paper. And it appears to be the latest in a series of papers coming out of the same research project. The lead author on all of these papers is David Oswald, who's currently a lecturer at RMIT in Melbourne, Australia. And each of these papers comes out of the same deep ethnographic work within a single, very large multinational construction project in the UK. So this isn't the first ethnographic paper we've looked at. I have to admit, I personally have got a bit of a bias towards reading ethnographic papers just because of the realism that they're talking about real safety on real projects. How about you, David? How do you find reading these sorts of things? Yeah, Drew, I always find it more interesting interesting to read quotes that people have said rather than statistics in a table. It allows me to relate what I'm reading to my own experiences within organisational life and, and starts me thinking about, you know, the extent to which I agree or disagree and, and how well do I think that I understand the context that would have given rise to the comment that is being produced in the paper. And look, we know that we get that thick and rich description, which um, raises all those opportunities for us to explore theory and question and challenge what we know. But we also have to remind ourselves of the downside that ethnographic research is very context dependent. And, and this research was done within a single construction project, within a single geography, with a single set of organisations involved. And, you know, we need to, we need to reflect on that and be um, a little bit careful in how we generalise the findings to, say, for example, all construction projects all around the world. So when we were preparing for the podcast... And one of our immediate thoughts was, okay, just what exactly was the role of the researcher in this project? Uh, so were they there as a researcher? Were they there pretending to be a safety practitioner? 
were they there actually as a safety practitioner with a lot of responsibility for how safety was practiced on that project? Uh, now, we don't have immediate answers to those questions and you can't get answers to those directly out of the paper, which is what we've got to work with. But I think that's one of the tensions that we have always when we're doing ethnographic research is that conflict between what is your role as a participant in the situation you're in? How much should you be trying to influence it? How much should you be sitting back and observing it? And when you notice interesting things, is that because those things really do happen on projects or is it, are they happening because you're there? Yeah, I think that's right, Drew. I think when I did my own ethnographic research, um, there's huge advantages to being an insider because you understand the context and you have the relationships and you can elicit the information that might be unattainable to independent researchers. But you're also trying a little bit to be an outsider to separate what you're seeing in the organisation from your own thoughts and views and uh, perspectives on safety. And and that tension you know, can be quite difficult and quite a lot of work's got to go into the analysis of the paper and there's quite a lot of responsibility on the co-authors of a paper like this to make sure that the the findings of the paper are grounded in in strong analysis as opposed to the preferences of the person who was inside the organisation doing the research. Mm. So, so a couple of interesting things about this one. The first one is it uses a slightly unusual style in that reading through the paper, it's a mixture of description of the work that was immediately in front of the researcher and references to research. And so very often it'll talk of a problem that the researcher noticed and then cite three other papers that talk about similar problems that occurred. And, and that gives us, I think, a bit of confidence that the issues that we're seeing here are not single to a particular project. So I think that style works well in this case. I also think that given that the topic is really how these early decisions about which tenders, tender bids we accept affect downstream safety means that we can be fairly confident that the researcher is observing rather than creating the situation because they're not the ones who selected the tender in the first place. They're the ones who are trying to live with and observe the effects. So I think this is a really going to be a really uh, important question for many of our listeners. It's it's taken us six episodes or so to get onto the topic of contractors directly, but many of my experiences within organisations has always been, you know, how do we how do we understand our contractors or our partners in business? How do we how do we work with them? How do we manage them? How do we get the performance we expect out of them? And you know, I've lost count of the number of conversations I've had with with people in organisations who have said oh, no, no, we're fine. It's our contractors that are the problem. And I think this paper allows us to have a bit of a conversation about how how that environment is structured around, how that contracting environment is structured that creates some of those challenges that we sometimes just uh, put onto our contractors. So, David, I'd like to split this conversation up into two parts. Uh, the first part I want to talk about, how, how can it happen that we have someone who has submitted a tender for a project and they've won a tender that's going to earn them less money than it's going to cost them to deliver the project. So, you know, how is it that that's a situation that can happen? Well, not just can happen, but keeps happening. And then the second conversation I want to have is what's the effect of when that happens and who has responsibility for it? So let's start with what happens. I'll take this from the paper, but David, I'm hoping you'll jump in with your own experiences here. So in construction, there are three categories we can divide costs into. Construction companies have got long-term costs. These aren't directly associated with any particular project. They're things that stand outside the projects. So you might think of them as overhead, but they can include even just capital equipment that's definitely not overhead but lasts beyond a single project. Similarly, there are things like investing in skills and long-term people 
investing in long-term systems. So these are sometimes called fixed costs because they exist regardless of how many projects the company has. Even if you don't have any work on at the moment, you still have the systems, you still have some of your permanent people, you still have some of this capital equipment. And then there's the direct costs of safety on each individual project. So that includes anything that you have to buy specifically for that project. And it includes any time you have to spend specifically on safety activities in that project. And then the third category is where there are just unexpected costs. So often these will come through changing external requirements. They'll come from customer demands, client demands, might be a change in legislation, might be an accident or incident or an inspection, causes something that you haven't budgeted for at all. And so what tends to happen is if a company is desperate to get work because they don't have enough projects on, then they put in a tender where they're just putting in the minimum of the direct costs. So they're assuming that there, if there's any unexpected costs, that they can recover those costs by putting in variations. And they're making the sacrifice that this particular project won't be contributing to the long-term costs of the organisation. Yeah. Yeah, I think you've described that quite well, Drew, is that um, in many of these organisations, some, some money is better than no money. And uh, particularly when they've got those fixed costs in their organisation that are going to be there anyway, then uh, to keep projects that are coming in the door and and maybe contributing nothing to profit, maybe contributing nothing to the overhead is still better than actually going without work. So there's a number of other reasons that the companies might might try to be really, really competitive on price for a bid. It might be um, a new market entry for a particular client. They might be trying to actually get a type of work that they haven't done before. So there's a number of reasons that that contracting organisations will do almost loss-leading type of um, project tenders. And I think it's just important, well, in the safety context for us to understand not so much how to stop that from happening, because I don't think that we're going to be able to stop that from happening, but how to understand that that's the context and how to work with that to, uh, to limit the impact and the compromises on safety. The, the paper breaks it down into two particular sort of extremes of the situation. So one of them is a genuinely sub-economic bid or an underbid. So that's where the contractor is actually promising to do the work for less income than the direct costs of getting the job done. So that means that the customer is explicitly getting the job cheaper than it costs. They know they're getting a discount. Now, that could be, as David, you said, it could be a strategic move. So the company who is doing the work knows that they're going to take a loss they're prepared to take that loss. It's in their long-term strategic interest. So it's actually a sign possibly of long-term thinking. The other alternative there is that it's relying on not delivering what was promised. Very short-term thinking. Uh, we'll get the bid now and we'll worry about how much it costs to deliver it later. So they're hoping basically to make up any shortfall by there being variations in the project that they can somehow claw back some of the money from. Uh, more common is where it's not actually sub-economic. It's what's known as marginal cost pricing. So not technically an underbid, it's just not contributing to the long-term profit, it's just costing in how much this exact project will cost. So that doesn't contribute to long-term management of the organisation, and it leaves no room in the project for dealing with the unexpected. It's just running on a very, very tiny profit margin for the sake of keeping work, keeping people employed, keeping the equipment being used. And a lot of times, Drew, even that pricing of trying to cover costs will will omit certain things that different stakeholders in the organisation would be considering necessary for certain projects. So I've been involved in 
in construction project bids or, or seen construction project bids that haven't costed, for example, any safety resources for the project. And so there, there can be times when even the direct costs aren't covered when the organisation thinks that they have covered the direct costs. So the result of this situation is that even if the organisation itself might have money in the background, for this particular project, there is no cash surplus. There's only what has been directly costed for. And that means that it's not even an option to do extra discretionary stuff for safety because there's simply no money to do that. There's no point going along to a contractor in that situation and trying to say, well, you know, safety is good business because an accident next week is going to cost you more than it would cost to spend money on safety now. There's no point convincing someone to spend money if they literally have no money that they can spend. No matter how good the argument is, no matter how good the investment in safety is, no matter how much they might want to invest more in safety, they simply cannot. The money is not there in their project to spend. And that means that any spending on safety is going to be a direct trade-off and any shortfall elsewhere is going to have to directly trade off with safety as well. Yeah. Andrew, this paper points out a number of specific ways that they observe these trade-offs directly impacting the safety of work within the construction project. So do you want to tell us a little bit about those direct trade-offs that were made on this project? Sure. So the paper gives a bit of a list of these things. So a lot of the quotes are about tools. And it's always very authentic to see these quotes about workers complaining about their tools. And what we're talking about is simply cheap tools. That cheapness comes out in a number of ways. A number of the tools, they've got more noise and vibration. So the tools have gone through a sort of safety induction process and they've got red stickers on saying that you're only allowed to use them for two hours a day because more than that violates noise requirements. Some of the tools aren't properly fitted for tethering. So large construction project, they're working at heights. Those tools need to be protected against being dropped. Um, but the tethering equipment doesn't fit onto the tools easily, so they've got to modify the tool in order to get the tethers on. And sometimes the tools are so cheap that the workers are bringing along their own tools and they're refusing to have their tools modified to work with the tethering system because that's going to stuff up their tools. And what right does someone else have to take my tool and modify it just in order to work with someone's drop protection system? The paper, in fact, mentions whole boxes of tethers sitting in the site safety office that had been purchased because that's how many they needed. And that's sort of a sign of how many tools were out there that didn't have a tether attached because they were still sitting in the box. So second category, and this gets a lot of attention as well, is personal protective equipment. And the important thing here is that it's all equipment that meets the technical minimum standards, but that means it's cheap in other ways. So it's shoes that are properly steel capped, but they're just not comfortable to wear. It's clothing that is fire retardant, but not fireproof. So technically you're allowed to wear it, but there are people with their clothes catching fire. It's high vis that doesn't sit comfortably uh, or gloves that don't work well with the work. So people are less inclined to wear them, need stronger behavioral safety programs to encourage them to wear the gloves that they don't want to wear. The third category is temporary works and structures and facilities. And it's a similar story here that all of these things meet technical, legal, minimum requirements, but that extra gap between the minimum and the best is not just a luxury, it's a safety issue. So one of the things that the paper doesn't say explicitly, this is me reading between the lines, is that a lot of this equipment is chronically below standard. So what they're doing is they're installing 
not everything that they need. And then if someone comes along and inspects it and says, sorry, you need a gate, that's the point at which they add a gate. So on average, everything is sitting below what you need and you just correct it in line with the inspections. And it's forcing the safety people and the inspectors to point out every single defect because unless a defect gets flagged, it doesn't get fixed by default. As compared to a company which is working slightly above standard, where the inspections aren't finding many defects because the average is to have a little bit more than you need. Yeah, and I think, Drew, the the interesting point was the fourth point that they raised around the labour. And they talked about having migrant labour and and if a contractor bids low, then all of the subcontractors that are going to engage on the project are going to be cheaper uh, subcontractors as well. And they talked about having subcontractors and labour on the project with limited experience, limited training in, in construction systems and processes. And so that, I think, created a whole lot of challenges for, for this particular project. Yeah, I think there was a double whammy going on that you can either have highly skilled labour and then you need to do less to train and coordinate, or you can have cheaper labour and need to do more to supervise and train and help them work together. But on a low-cut project, they're cutting costs by employing the cheap labour, and then they lack any extra budget to give them the type of training and assistance systems that you need to work with the lower skilled labour. Yeah, and I think one of the other interesting things on this project is is they kind of start, it, it appeared from the paper that they'd started the project with the best intention. So they'd engaged a, a safety culture consultant who was meant to do surveys and questionnaires throughout the project to monitor the, the level of safety culture on the project. But that apparently seemed to be very early cut out of the project. One of those things where it was expensive, we, we're not going to continue doing it. But at some point in the project, uh, there must have been a reason for something like that to need to be put in place. Maybe it was the issue with the tools or maybe it was some pressure from the client. So they they went about trying to establish a behavioral safety program by the look of it mid-project. And they got a consultant in to, to do a training session. And the paper quite interestingly says like two people turned up to the training session. A good ethnography leaves you asking more questions than it answers. Like I'd love to know all of the situation around what was going on in the middle of that project with with the supervisors and, and with the client and with the contractor. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating that if you look at this, it's a list of tools not quite adequate, personal protective equipment just meeting minimum legal standards, uh, temporary works just meeting minimum legal standards. At labour and training, just doing the minimum you have to do for the law. And then suddenly there's this behavioural safety program, which is genuinely discretionary. There's no law or regulation or thing in the contract saying you had to have a behavioural safety program. And it's there. And what's more, they're actually wasting money. <laughs> so the people running the program are saying, you know, we regret this investment. <laughs> and it seems as if the lack of ability to coordinate the safety program and the lack of ability to get people free from their work to show up to training actually means that not only are they cutting back on safety, but they're wasting money on safety at the same time. So at the same time as they don't have enough money, they're wasting money. And it seems exactly like that situation where people who are very well off like to blame poor people for not buying stuff economically. And they don't realise that it actually costs money to be poor. You, it costs money to have to budget in the short term and not be able to purchase lots of stuff in advance or at bulk, not to be able to travel to the supermarket that's got the best goods, not to be able to spend time cooking the healthy meal out of raw ingredients. 
So food ends up costing poor people more money than it costs rich people. And it seems a similar thing here. That once you cut enough money out, you actually end up wasting money because of the really short-term thinking and the inability to plan ahead. Yeah, and I can only imagine there was there was so much going on this on this project and potentially we don't we don't know about incidents or whether there was single large incidents or a whole number of smaller incidents. But you just imagine with the the state of what we've described in this project that there was pressure at some point for the contractor to improve safety. And it seems as though they went straight to behavioral safety as a way of saying, look, it's too hard to just fix all of these things that we we need to fix. Let's try to put a behavioral program over the top of it. And they then went on and got more than 6,000 behavioral observations compiled and a whole lot of activity. But I'd be really curious and in fact, really surprised if any of that activity that they wrapped over the top of it actually made any material impact to the way that the contractors were performing work physically in on the project. David, you and I have spoken before about the need when putting in safety interventions to properly evaluate them. And I'm absolutely certain that the last thing or the last message anyone would have wanted to hear was if you're going to put in a behavioural safety program, then make sure you take the time to properly evaluate it. I think the proper evaluation would have been the very first thing on the cutting floor. So if we take the situation for what it is and, and what we've described, Drew, let's turn it into practice for our listeners. So so what's our advice and what are your thoughts about what our listeners can do if they're faced with this situation at the start of a project or, or this kind of situation during a project? So I do think we need to keep in mind the limitations of an ethnography in that this research can't give us definitive answers about what to do. Um, but I think where it's very useful is that it puts some meat on the bones and at least creates a documentary record of the types of problems that I think, David, you and I and lots of our listeners know exist. We just are not able to necessarily sometimes express those problems and arguments clearly enough at the right time to stop this sort of thing happen. So it's something that just drives us continually frustrated. So the uh, first point that I think we can take away as a general thing is that once an organisation's made a decision to accept a low bid, that's not something that can be compensated by putting just greater scrutiny or pressure or encouragement for safety later on, because the subcontractor doesn't have capacity to respond to that pressure. It, even if they do respond, what they're going to be trying to do is put in the minimum they can to keep the principal contractor or client satisfied they're not going to be undertaking discretionary activities because they have no discretion, they have no capacity. So I've heard of companies saying things before like, oh, we'll accept the bid, we'll accept, we know that these are not the best subcontractors, we know that it's a low bid, but it's going to be the job of the safety team to keep them up to scratch. So the assumption is that we can compensate by for a problem in the bid by extra scrutiny or extra supervision. But unless we're actually willing to spend extra money and to provide the resource that the subcontract lacks, then they're going to be, we're accepting real shortfalls in safety that we're not going to be able to recover. And that in turn then means that for safety people to influence this situation, they need to influence the decision, the setting up of this situation. They can't just be agents of the organisation trying to manage subcontractors. So David, I know you've got some specific thoughts on that. So I'll keep it general for a moment and just say that this needs to be a more sophisticated discussion than simply, oh, tenders are a trade-off between cost and safety. It's not like we can just say, okay, let's evaluate all the bids on price and make sure they meet minimum safety standards. 
we need to be able to make a financial argument for safety and not a safety is important, safety is going to cost money if there's an accident. But this is a bad financial decision. It's a short-term decision because it's going to result in poor spending of money and ultimately our company is going to have to pay for this. There is going to be waste on the project. There's going to be training that no one attends. There's going to be buckets of tool tethers that no one's using. There are going to be gloves that no one's following. There's going to be temporary works that we need to replace because they're not up to code. And ultimately, who do you think is going to pay for that? It's going to be us. If we're going to have to pay for it anyway, let's pay for it now and do it properly once. But David, I'd, I'd like your thoughts on specifically what does good practice mean when we're trying to build consideration of safety into a tender process? Yeah, I think up front, Drew, we have to acknowledge that this situation exists and this situation is probably not going to go away. Contractors compete on price. And I think most, if not all organisations that, that I have worked with and do work with, wait price anywhere between 70 and 100% of the consideration when it comes to evaluating comparing tenders. So as much as we would like to think that we've integrated safety into our tender evaluation process, I still have only seen a handful of times in my career where an organization has genuinely dismissed a tender because of safety performance, or in fact, a dismissed a tenderer that the organization wanted to go with because they saw something in the safety performance that they didn't like. It's easy to dismiss a tender for safety performance if you were never going to use them anyway. But specifically, my advice would be, be different if you're a client and a contractor on two sides of the relationship. So if you're a client, what you need to do is very clearly specify the level of safety that you expect. I would ask contractors to cost and explain their safety management separately, not just uh, incorporate in a general bucket of general expenses for the project. And then when you see tenders, you, you kind of know you're evaluating tenders with a comparable level of safety. And then once you've got that level of safety specified within the tenders and the tender evaluation is clearly make sure that that level of safety is specified in the terms and conditions of the contract. So when contractors do need to cut costs or do need to try to uh, preserve margin at some point throughout their project, then you've at least got contractual requirements which you can lean on to try to prevent the contractor from dipping into safety. So if you're a client, be clear about the safety you expect and, uh, and make sure that you make, uh, make it clear to the contractor that they're going to be accountable for delivering on that throughout the project. And so if you're a contractor or a health and safety practitioner in a contractor organisation, you've got a responsibility to make sure that your safety practices are efficient as possible. You know, removing all the clutter as we talk about you're working in a competitive and a margin-constrained industry, and you're going to be more successful in your safety efforts if you support your organization to deliver on both safety and efficiency. So don't try to keep that fixed cost around safety in the organization as low as possible and try to be very specific about what you put in to your organization into, into every one of their projects. I'd work to agree a, a set of minimum standards for physical safety that your sales team and your, your project execution teams don't compromise on. So as we saw in this paper, having organizational-wide minimum standards on equipment and you know, the, the capability of subcontractors and the quality of PPE would be a really good thing to do. And then more generally, get involved in knowing how the business is running. Make sure you know what projects are uh, profitable, what projects are loss-leading. Make sure you support the project management managers in these very difficult and extremely margin-constrained projects. And if you're in one of those projects, which is which is struggling or, or loss leading, you know, align your organization as early as possible uh, around a commitment not to compromise on safety. 
So there's actually a lot you can do in this environment. There's many construction and contracting organizations that, that do some of this very well and operate successfully and sustainably and safely in, in this type of environment. But if you're not doing all those types of things, then you're probably going to end up being involved in a project like we've, we've read about in this paper. So David, getting back to our question for the week, so what does it do to safety when we accept the cheapest tender? What is the cost? I think you're going to pay for it one way or another if you accept the cheapest tender. You, you are either going to get unexpectedly worse safety outcomes or you might get lucky. You might, you might not have those safety outcomes, but then you'll probably have time and, and cost explosion throughout the project at some point. You know, you, it's one of those truisms that you get what you pay for. You can have fast, high cost or, or quality. You, you kind of can't have all three. So if you're listening to the podcast and you're involved in contracting and tendering, uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. What do you consider to be good practice? What are you innovating with? What are you trying to help make this work more effective? I'm sure this is a topic we're going to come back to in the top in the podcast several times as we explore different questions around the relationship between business practices such as subcontracting and safety. So yes, yeah, send us your comments either to our email address that we'll give you in a moment, or we've got a group active on LinkedIn where people are already sharing some comments. We much prefer some critical comments and questions and thoughts than just general pats on the back. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes directly to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com.